0: But I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Our scripture reading this morning is going to be from verse 1 through verse 13 in that passage. <clears throat> and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version translation. Now, I have to ask can you hear me adequately? Uh, because um, one of the things which affects many of us with the air quality gets so bad is it just begins to uh, alter our voices and. Uh, make us hoarse and things like that, and all during the last couple of weeks, within a couple of hours of getting up, my voice goes from its normal, <clears throat> wonderfully rich, baritone <laughs> kind of sounds to this sort of hoarse and raspy. <clears throat> Mark chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, English Standard Version Translation. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James, John and Andrew, asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of, war, hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation kingdom against kingdom, there will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains, but be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations." for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved let's pray our father we ask for your holy spirit truly as as bruce already prayed to guide each of us into an understanding of your truth and especially to guide me uh, as i uh, present uh, the things which i prepared and ask almighty god that you would help us to understand that jesus desires us to be faithful witnesses in this world no matter what things we may encounter and for that we pray we've been asked the lord that our christian faith would be the very thing that jesus wanted it to be salt and light uh, to those with whom we live that we might bear a faithful witness in jesus name amen i want to begin by talking about a certain kind of uh a thing that uh, people have contracted a lot as Christians, which we should be vaccinated against and inoculated against. Uh, we can call it the end times virus, the end times virus. Now, early in my college days, this was back in the 1970s, during those Jesus movement days, uh, most of us were infected with this end times virus. Um uh, it came from reading the Bible through the lens of premillennial dispensationalism and the late great planet Earth. Uh, the end of the world as we knew it was upon us. This was the truth, according to the, a dispensational way of understanding everything that was happening. Uh, you know, 1970, it's just 22 years since... The nation Israel, and fulfillment of great prophecy, was reestablished in 1948. That began the prophetic clockdown on the terminal generation, the last generation. So you go from 1948, 40-year generation, to 1988. 1988 was the year for sure that Jesus Christ was going to come back. Therefore, since the church was going to be raptured before the great seven-year tribulation, the great tribulation... The church was leaving the earth in 1981. Therefore, in 1970, 71, 72, when I was infected with this virus, I was convinced, like so many others involved in, in the Jesus movement, you've got to get the Great Commission done by 1980, because in 1981, the church is out of here. We've got to get it done. Jesus is going to come back. That's the prophetic timetable. Not only that, but you know, that was going to usher in all of those end-time events. The Antichrist was going to rise. He was going to make a treaty with Israel. He was going to break that treaty. Uh, there was going to be the War of Gog and Magog. Uh, then Jesus was going to make his visible appearance in 1988, come back to the world, split the clouds, trumpet sound, everything rolled up, wrapped up. But then the Millennial Kingdom was going to begin. Now... The thinking among many of us at UCLA at this time, when we're, you know, we're in a school that's got some prestige, we're thinking about careers, we stop thinking about careers. Uh, my, my brothers and I, as we lived together, jokingly uh, established the BTTR Club. Many of those were established. It's the chapter of bachelors till the rapture. <laughs> Why think about a career? Why think about marriage? Why polish brass on a sinking ship? You can't even imagine how caught up most of us were during that time with that kind of thinking about the church, about our lives, about human history. Now, with that kind of fever, I went to speak to my dad because I was concerned about his salvation. Although my mom convinced he was a Christian, I was concerned So I began with this approach. Dad, the prophecies in the Bible about the end times are being fulfilled right now. The end of the world is going to happen soon. It's going to happen in our lifetime. And right then, my dad stopped. Randall, stop. What you're beginning to tell me is what they have been saying ever since I was a boy. I have heard this all of my life. And more or less, he shook his head with the attitude, this whole thing sounds like a lot of nonsense to me. I was frustrated. My dad wouldn't give me a hearing. A few years later, I was glad that he didn't. For two reasons. First, within three years, I was cured of end-times fever. I stopped reading the Bible through the lens of premillennial dispensationalism. That cured me. Didn't read the Bible that way. Made a big difference. But then I had also observed and come to the realization that when people have their faith fixed upon when Jesus is coming back the message of the Christian faith for that person as well as for anybody they talk to is held hostage to that viewpoint you see my dad had understood something of the gospel from that perspective I'm glad my dad didn't doubt the gospel, but he had reasons to doubt the gospel because during his boyhood, during the time of just when World War II was coming, the end is here. During that time, he had heard in churches, it's happening now, it's happening now. If he had tied any faith in Jesus to the view of the end times, and the end times Jesus coming back didn't happen, he could have lost his faith. But he didn't. But I began to see that there were those who were more fixed on understanding exactly when Jesus was coming back than they were on Jesus and the message of the gospel. So, I got out of the BTTR club. In coming to this passage... In Mark chapter 13, which is paralleled, 24th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, paralleled the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Luke. When we come to this passage, one of my desires is that you would be vaccinated against end times fever because it isn't healthy. But even more, I want us to see the value of what Jesus was forecasting for the church. Because what Jesus was forecasting for the church in 2,000 years of church history has been predominantly the norm rather than the exception. The norm for Christians in the world over the last 2,000 years is that time and again they have been facing impossibly challenging conditions. That's why Jesus introduces several of his significant points with a warning. He does this in verse 5 and 9 and 23 and 33. They all begin with the same Greek word, even though the ESV translates the first instance differently than verse 9, 23, and 33. The word is basically the Greek word for look or see, but it's in a command form. And in that command form, it doesn't say see. No, it says look, meaning look out. And so good translations as it does in verse 9 and 23 and 33 puts it this way. Be on your guard. Because that's the thrust of the message that Jesus gives in this section of the sermon on Mount Olive. Be on your guard, because what Jesus is going to describe are going to be the troubles and the conditions that are going to be normative for the Christian church in the world. Now, in this warning, Jesus is going to speak to three things between verses 5 and 13. Deceivers, great upheavals in the world, and persecutions all the while speaking about the responsibility that believers are going to have to take the gospel to all the world. Now, when we look at this, we can say, what is the big picture? What is the main lesson here? We touched upon this last week in terms of Jesus perfectly predicting the coming of the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. It's basically this. God is sovereign all of all of history. And, and that which was going to be the greatest disaster to the Jewish nation... The destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, was fully within the plan of God. God's sovereign over these things. Jesus is accurately predicting what's going to be taking place. They're forewarned in order to be prepared. That's the thrust of what's going on in this passage. Forewarned in order to be prepared. We have a mission to carry out as Christians, a mission that's going to encounter and face impossibly challenging conditions. Now, verses 5 and 6, the first set of troubles, as Jesus presents it here, involves deceivers or imposters, Uh, people who are going to come in the name of Christ, some even claiming to be a Christ or the Christ. And Jesus says that we are to be on our guard, be on your guard, that no one leads you astray. Well, astray about what? Astray about these imposters. They might lead you astray, but astray about what? In what way are they going to lead you astray? They're going to lead you astray about the end. The end of the age, basically. Uh, Some, in terms of the context here, will hear these people coming along in the name of Christ or claiming to be Christ. And they're going to be led astray because they're going to think that what's going on is a sign that the end is upon them right then. There are those who are going to come in the name of Christ and claim that the end is right here, right now. Parallel in Luke. This is what Luke says describing this. They will say, the time is at hand. So Jesus tells his disciples, Luke 21.8, don't fall for this. That is, don't go after them. Don't go after anyone who claims that the end of the world is here. What is a fact of history is that in spite of what Jesus says in this passage... Many have come claiming that the age is ending, the time is at hand. And many have followed preachers who've made that kind of claim. Now, a couple of really sad examples from church history. At the time of the Reformation, uh, there was what has been called the the radical left of the Reformation, uh, essentially tied into what's known as the Anabaptist movement. Church history tells us that not just a few, but hundreds of little groups sprung up during that time, preaching a a radical perspective, uh, claiming through their premillennial teachings that all the powers and gifts of the Holy Spirit were now theirs, that what was upon them was going to be the immediate end of history. And one of the saddest and and bloodiest examples of this is what took place in the German town of Munster. The Anabaptists seized control of that city. And then there was a tailor from Holland who proclaimed himself to be the Messiah, began minting coins that had things about the apocalypse happening right away. Uh, Because he claimed to be this messianic messiah figure, he thought he could be a polygamist, so he started taking on multiple wives. And his followers, they all started living debauched kinds of lives, but the forces of the, of the army of the prince came, <clears throat> surrounded the city, bloody, bloody siege. It ended in a total disaster, 1535. If believers had only known not to follow such a person, they wouldn't have been pulled in to this kind of teaching. But America... Uh, first uh, half of the 19th century, in the 1840s. There was a guy by the name of William Miller. He began to preach the second coming was coming. He said it was going to come between March 21st, 1843 and March 21st, 1844. It was happening during that year. Now, his works got published far and wide. So far and wide that 100,000 people literally believed that this was going to happen, that the world was going to end in a great conflagration, a great fire. They sold everything they had. They fled to the mountains. They took their safety there, waiting for the end to happen, which, of course, never came. Now... What Jesus is warning his disciples about is the reality that the church is going to be under this kind of an insidious attack. Uh, It was going to happen in the first century. We've seen it happen at other times in church history. People posing themselves in the name of Christ, even posing to be Christ. What Jesus said then is still applicable today, quoting from Luke 21 8 Be on your guard that you're not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. I hope that begins to inoculate you against end times fever. Just a little bit. The second trouble that Jesus presents here is to predict the tremendous the tremendous geopolitical upheavals that are going to come. Verse 7 and 8. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, Because we know nothing almost about Roman history, because we know almost nothing about Jewish history during this time, we're not impacted the way the disciples would have been when they heard this. In 30 AD, the Pax Romana, the peace and stability of the Roman Empire, appeared to be invincible. It had been going on for decades. Uh, There were little border skirmishes, but the internal nature of the Roman Empire itself was solidly stable. Uh, Even the famine that came in the 40s did not really disrupt the stability of the Roman Empire. What Jesus is talking about here would not happen for 30 years. Three decades would go by. And these wars and rumors of wars would not begin to happen. But about the middle of the 60s, we have the Jewish revolt against Rome, AD 66. Uh, The Roman emperor, Caesar Nero, commands his forces uh, to respond to this revolt in Palestine. And they do. Uh, the armies get mobilized against the, the Jewish forces that are now rebelling against Rome. Two years into this, uh, Syro commits suicide. What's been troubling everything in the eastern part of the empire in terms of the Jewish revolt, now we have things that are going to trouble the empire in terms of its capital. Because the very next year, even though the war in the Middle East didn't stop, civil war breaks out in Rome. Something that hadn't happened in decades and decades and decades takes place in Rome. In one year, there are four different emperors. The one who comes out on the top is Vespasian. Vespasian. The upheaval of what happened at the capital of Rome had repercussions all throughout the empire. The war against the Jews continued. Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in AD 70, but the war against the Jews continues all the way to its final battle when the fortress of Masada is taken in AD 73. Now, the point is this. What Jesus predicted coming to the Roman Empire and to the Jewish nation demonstrates his incredible accuracy to predict what was going to happen in the future. Because when Jesus said this, for the next 30 years, the empire, nothing changes. The stability, the peace is there. But then in the decade of the 60s, and between the 60s and the 80s, all the things that Jesus talks about begin to be fulfilled in spades. That becomes a period of a constant time of pestilence, fires, hurricanes, earthquakes, volcanic eruptions as well as what happened in the Middle East with the Jewish revolt. These things begin to ravage the empire during that period of time. But Jesus told his disciples, when these things begin to take place, emphatically he says, this is not the end. When these things happen, this is the beginning of the birth pains. The beginning, not the end. That's why he says, do not be alarmed. This must take place. So, Jesus is telling his disciples that the monumental things that are going to affect the empire 30-some years in the future to them, it's not tied to those things that announce that he is coming again. They're not connected. That's the force of what Jesus says. To state this clearly, Jesus is telling His disciples that when the most devastating thing happens to Jerusalem, the destruction of their beloved city, the destruction of the temple, that's just the beginning of what's going to happen in time between His resurrection and between the second coming. It's just the beginning that's been announced. They were to be on their guard. They were not to be led astray into thinking that the end was going to be announced by great upheavals of war or earthquakes or famines, even the destruction of Jerusalem. They were not to be led astray by reports that Christ has already come or Christ is here. This is the beginning, not the end of the age. And yet, how often in my lifetime have I read books, seen message boards, things broadcast on TV, now on the Internet, which have pointed to wars and earthquakes and famines and pestilence and geopolitical upheavals as announcing that right now, at this time, the end is coming. Any moment now, Jesus is coming back. Any moment now, because the signs of the times are all around us, foretold by prophecy. Jesus is coming back. It's clearly happening within our generation. But the words of Jesus continue to apply. Don't be led astray. Don't be alarmed. These things are not signs of the end. The third concern in the passage then, verses 9 through 13, also begins with, be on your guard. Here Jesus warns about the persecution and the cost of following him faithfully. Now, one other recollection about the end times virus when I was infected with it. All this supposed persecution that was going to happen when Jesus comes back wasn't going to affect me. Because you see, the virus I was infected with essentially said this there's going to be a great, great tribulation. It's going to be such a disturbance just before Jesus comes back. But here's the good news. The church won't go through it. Yeah, right when the Great Tribulation starts, the church is going to be raptured out of the world. Christians don't have to suffer this kind of persecution. Christians don't have to go through all of this kind of stuff. Christians don't have to suffer for the name of Jesus. Essentially, was the message that we were getting. We're getting. Reading all of this through the lens of this Pre-tribulational, pre-millennial understanding of things. Now, the point of what Jesus says in this passage is, you're forewarned so you can be prepared. And I just have to say that bad teaching about the end times fails to prepare people for what's going to happen. And so we, we look at the, really, the truth of what Jesus is saying. We see six points here in terms of his warning. And the first is this. Those who are in authority are going to persecute believers. Verse 9. Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils. You'll be beaten in synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Now here we have the cost of following Jesus. For his sake, for Jesus' sake, these apostles, the followers, the church, are going to be persecuted by those in authority. You read through the book of Acts and you see any number of instances and examples of this happening. All throughout church history, if you've ever had an opportunity to look through Fox's book of martyrs, which every Christian ought to look at, you'll see that time and again, believers faithfully living out their lives and especially preachers faithfully preaching the gospel were arraigned before leaders and kings and councils and beaten and threatened and imprisoned and sometimes put to death. You can read about these things as well if you subscribe to the modern uh, Voice of the Martyrs basically reporting on what's happening to the persecuted church throughout the world. It's happened in North Korea. It happens in China. It happens in Muslim-dominated countries in Africa, in the Middle East. It happens in South America. It happens everywhere in the world. America is the unusual place of Christians. It's not the norm. Verse 10, the gospel must be preached to all the nations. In spite of this persecution, Jesus says, even in the midst of this persecution, the gospel is going to be proclaimed to all nations. Now, what does all nations mean here? Well, there are a few references in the New Testament where all nations can refer and generally only refers to the Roman Empire. But in the larger context of the New Testament, the larger context of the Bible, the concept of all nations refers to all the nations, distributively. Uh, we see this in Genesis chapter 12, the promise to Abraham. And you, all the nations of the earth, will be blessed. All the nations. Not just some. Not just the Roman Empire. Not just the Middle East. All the nations of the world will be blessed. Then, in the speaking of Christ and what He did for us. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. Jesus Christ dies and He purchases for God people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation it's extensive but we also see this in 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 matthew and in acts for instance in acts when the missionary program is given to the disciples you'll receive power when the holy spirit comes upon you you'll be my witnesses in jerusalem judea samaria and to the end of the earth that's not the roman empire extension that's everywhere we know that because the apostles actually went everywhere. They went beyond the confines of the Roman Empire. Matthew 24:14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations and then the end will come. God's design in human history has never been restricted to the Roman Empire. It's always been global. It's always been the whole world. The great commission to the whole world. Has not yet been fulfilled. This is what I couldn't understand. What began to separate me from the lens of dispensational premillennial eschatology was they're saying Jesus can come back any moment. The Great Commission hasn't been fulfilled. But Jesus says he doesn't come back until the Great Commission has been fulfilled. That began to help me get inoculated don't expect Christ to return to this world till the great commission has been fulfilled verse 11 the Holy Spirit will testify as believers testify what a great promise uh, the, the encouragement is even when you're arraigned before leaders and and people and authority and so forth you don't have to prepare ahead of time what you're supposed to say. The Holy Spirit will be with you at that time to teach you. The Holy Spirit will be with you at that time to say what you're supposed to say. What a great comfort. Verse 12, and this is the really sad thing, but it's true. Those who love you the most, or you think love you the most, or those you think you love the most, even the intimate ones of your family will betray you. And brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. The first century Jewish Christians found this to be so. But anywhere you have followed the missionary expanse of the church throughout the world, when the gospel went to India and there were converts, Hindus put those converts to death. When when. The gospel went to Japan. Family members put Christians who were converted to death. In communist countries, when you became a Christian, this happened in Russia, happened in China, North Korea. Those who were part of the party would actually have you arrested, persecuted, put to death. It's happened again and again and again that even those closest to us, Will turn on us if they're not turned to Christ. Verse, the last part of verse thirteen, or first part of verse thirteen, the hatred of Christians will be universal. Jesus said, "You'll be hated by all for my name's sake." The early church found this to be true. We see it happening in so many parts of the world today the last point Jesus makes, perseverance is necessary. Perseverance is necessary. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now the parallel in Luke helps us to understand that where Luke says, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. In other words, in contrast to the many who are led astray, in contrast to the many who are led astray and then fall away, there's the promise that those who endure to the end, those who have their eyes fixed on Jesus, they are the ones who will in fact endure through all the persecutions that they will face. I've got five more minutes of sermon and I'm already ten minutes past noon, so let me just wrap it up this way. The point of what Jesus is saying is that believers need to be prepared for the cost. What might the cost be? But The cost might very well be standing before those who have the power to take our lives and being faithful to Jesus to the very end. Why would Jesus ask that of us? Why would Jesus ask that we not deny him in the face of persecution? Jesus said that if you want to be blessed with the greatest blessings, then you will face persecution for his name's sake. Jesus says if you desire to save your life, you're going to lose it. But if you surrender your life for my sake, you will save it. We live in a very anemic kind of Christian world in the United States where we don't think that suffering and Christianity go together. But I'm convinced of this. If I don't tell you, you must be willing to die for the sake of Jesus in the face of persecution. I will have failed as a shepherd, commissioned to preach the word of God. If I told you somehow there's a great escape, it's not going to happen to you. You're going to be raptured out of here. I would fail in my responsibility to see that you're prepared for what it takes to follow Jesus. The Apostle Paul could say at the end of his life, I am free of the blood of all men because I have faithfully, from house to house, proclaimed the grace of the gospel. I don't want to die having failed to say what Jesus says here. We all need to be prepared because we have not lived the normal Christian life in America. We have lived where it's been safe and easy on Christians. We can't trust that that's going to continue much longer. Therefore, we need to be prepared. We need to reckon, is our faith in Jesus of such value to me that I would be willing to die for Christ if it should come to that? And if it should come to that, then hopefully day by day, We've lived for Jesus so that we're truly ready if such a time should come. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, uh, help us to realize that the Christian faith isn't just a religion we follow. We are all in or we're all out. But it's only by your grace, Lord. It's only by your grace. Give us the grace to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Enable us to hold fast to Him even as we trust that Jesus has said, All that the Father has given to me will come to me. As Jesus has said, His sheep, not one of them will be lost, because He holds them all in His infallible hands. Father, you hold us in Your infallible hands. May we then trust not in ourselves, but in Your grace to enable us to persevere and endure to the end. In Jesus' name, amen.